Thank you for listening to this interview series by me, David Roth, from WPP, in conjunction with the World Retail Congress, which was recorded live at the World Retail Congress 2023. In this edition, I'm in conversation with Suzanne Long of Albertsons, one of the largest food and drug retailers in the United States, with over 2,200 stores in 34 states. Suzanne serves as Chief Sustainability and Transformation Officer, responsible for driving both the company's ESG strategy and the numerous enterprise-wide large-scale change initiatives. For more conversations in this podcast series, go to wppbav.com forward slash WRC 2023. But not before you've listened to this. So Suzanne, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And this is a bit of a rematch, isn't it? Because we did this interview first at the World Retail Congress in Barcelona, but due to a, a technical bug, we couldn't use a recording. So let's use this opportunity as maybe as taking a little retrospective and touch on some of the topical issues that also have arisen since the World Retail Congress in Barcelona. Now, this was your first retail, World Retail Congress, wasn't it? It was. Well, on the flight back from Barcelona, what were your sort of reflections on the Congress? What did you like about it? And maybe what did you bring back to Albertsons? I think there's a few things that come to mind for me. You know, one is around format and sort of the general feel and tenor of the World Retail Congress. And then I would also say there's something to actually the content itself, right? So I think it's both. And I think the experience that was unique there was this combination of those two things. So one of the things that was, I think, really interesting about attending the Congress is sometimes when you go to conferences, they feel very mechanical, feeding you information, sort of one-way conversation. And what I found fascinating about the Congress was actually the dialogues that got created, the openness of the attendees and this willingness to share. The conversations were really between retailers, which I found to be fabulous because in so many conferences, those conversations are between vendor and retailer. And I've you know certainly been to places where I literally flip my name tag around so that I don't have to be recognized because you get so inundated by that vendor community, which can be nice in terms of finding solutions, but isn't great in terms of elevating the dialogue within the industry. I really appreciated that about the interaction and the tone and tenor of the Congress. From a content point of view, there were a few themes I think that came out for me. The first one would be around data and AI. I mean, there is nothing in our retail business we can do where we shouldn't be factoring that in. It was pretty much like it was impossible to, maybe there was a new law that was in Barcelona at the time, that you couldn't say a sentence without having AI in it in one form or another. <laughs> That's absolutely right. It was, it was actually a test. You, you, you got knocked out of the round if you didn't bring it up. But what was really interesting too is hearing some of the applications for it and thinking about it you know, I remember the session, for example, with the technical creator of Uber and how he first thought about it. And then how does he see it coming to life in industries like retail and other places and sort of that next evolution of thinking? Um, so and having those outside experts of people who aren't necessarily in retail provide that context, I think, has a lot of value. I suppose that sort of mixture 
of the people who are steeped in in retail. It was wonderful wandering the corridors and just bumping into some of those retail icons that's always worthwhile just stopping and talking and finding out what's on their mind. And then other people in related industries, and again, not necessarily talking about the vendors, but other people who've done interesting things and who are applying some of their sort of thinking into retail. And I think it's the combination of those two that's quite a potent force. I think that's right. And their willingness to engage. So, I mean, despite their, I'll call it celebrity in the industry, it wasn't as though they presented and then wanted to exit stage left. They wanted to have conversation after presentations and panels to learn more, to engage more, to to sit at a meal and really have the next level of dialogue that I think oftentimes is so lacking in our industry. We have a I would say, you know, in broad strokes, um, this is especially true, I think, of U.S. retailers is we can be very inward focused. We can be very focused on what we're doing within our operations. We certainly keep an eye on the competition for sure, but you rarely get a chance to actually have a open dialogue about what are the industry issues and how might we, in some cases, be partnering together to solve those. Oh, I think that's a really interesting point. One of the observations, uh, in fact, you know, we recently did a broadcast with Ian McGarrigal, the uh, chairman of the World Retail Congress, which was called 10 Killer Lessons from the World Retail Congress. We'll put a link into that, the documentation on this as well. But one of those was those themes was this whole notion of kiss goodbye to command and control. Just the flexibility that retailing requires and therefore retail organisations require. Now, I know you have fulfilled many job functions in your career so far and I'm sure many to come as well but some of those in sort of strategy some of those in process re-engineering some of those in change management it would surprise me if a lot of those command and control wasn't a central feature in being able to make that change how do you see this whole notion of retail organizations who have traditionally been a command and control organizations how do you see them being able to to adapt to a decade where creativity and agility blaze the trail? Well, I think it's definitely a challenge for the industry. I do think that command and control was very much a culture for retailers for a very long time. But I know, for example, at Albertson's companies, one of the things we're trying to do is actually create a lot more associate engagement. The idea being that if people understand the why, if they feel more connected to what it is they're being asked to do, they're more likely to actually engage in a positive way, as opposed to just saying, thou shalt do X, and almost making it feel punitive if that activity isn't done. The encouragement, the positive leadership, and making them feel that who they are as an individual matters in what you're asking them to do. It's a massive change for the industry, but I think it's the way we're actually going to get the next generations of workers to think of retail as a cool job. 30 years ago, people clamored for checker and and bagger jobs in our stores because they saw opportunity for a career. And we just don't see, I think as an industry, people clamoring for those same roles and moving up. And part of it is because they don't see the horizon. Yes, I may be starting as a bagger in the store, but I have opportunities to move up into all kinds of management roles, leadership roles, IT roles. 
data and AI so that I don't get kicked out of the game roles. Right? <laughs> yeah, thank goodness you mentioned I mean, that because I was just about to shut you off if you hadn't. Yeah, I figured, I figured. No, I would have deserved it too. Our COO is a great example. You know, she actually started work as a checker in one of our stores and has worked all the way up through the organization. And the reason that I think she loves working for this company is because she felt connected all the way through her career. And I think creating that connection at store level is going to be really critical. It's all the things you mentioned. It's process re-engineering. It is change management because we have to get things out of people's way to make them feel connected to their jobs. I mean, you made a really interesting point about uh, your CEO coming up from the ranks. I think that was also the thing that struck me in this year's World Retail Congress was the number of CEOs who spoke and she spoke on panels and, and engaged in conversations, as you say, in the corridors, you know, who had starters as the checkout operator who had started as a management trainee in a, probably a very unglamorous part of the retail estate who you know have made it across the organization that was always an integral part of that retail journey why do you think maybe the last i don't know maybe five years or even 10 years that that hasn't been seen as a potential career progression what's the industry done itself in order to go backwards i suppose I think there's a, a couple of things. You know, the first is there's just no replacement for experience in a lot of cases, right? So you have to live it. You have to have dealt with that, you know, very tough customer who you've unfortunately disappointed in a store. You have to know what it is to, in our case, you know, slice meat in a deli or throw a load off a truck right onto the floor. You have to actually have gone through that cleaning up maybe a mess that a kid made in your store, right? There's all of these things where until you've gone through that, you don't fully understand what it is you're asking the stores to do and the kinds of challenges they face every day, even when they're not being asked to do something from corporate. So I think there's no replacing that experience. I think at the same time, sometimes if people don't have experiences outside the store, they can end up focusing on what they know or what they have known or what their history has taught them rather than the art of the possible. And I think the magic combination is taking people who have been there, done that, and giving them a broader perspective of, what is out there that we can learn from other industries, from other people, from other continents? Even just, you know, the difference between U.S. and Europe, which culturally is not that big of a shift, but we have a tendency not to bridge that ocean so that we're learning something new and figuring out how best to apply it in operations. So if you take somebody outside the industry, I think people oftentimes simplify what it means to do something at retail. But in the case of Albertsons companies, we have 250,000 associates, 2,300 locations, right, in 34 states. And so you think about the level of complexity of what it is to deliver, you have to have that operations experience. But in delivering that operations, you're only going to make it in the future if you're incorporating all of the new things that are coming. So whether that's new app technology, whether that is innovative ways of thinking, how do we move away from a command and control environment? How do we engage associates in a new way? How do we make our associates at store level familiar enough with technology that when a customer asks them about the app, they don't say, I just work here. So there's all of these nuances that bring the old with the new. And I think the companies that combine those best are gonna be the ones that succeed in the future. 
one of the things that was spoken about, I suppose, not quite as much as AI, but close to it, was the whole notion of other elements that are as important to a retail organisation as making a profit, and that is doing it in a way that reduces the impact on the environment. Now, one of your many responsibilities is impact on the environment and environmental responsibilities. What do you see going forward, the leaps that are going to be made, hopefully led by retailers, to reduce the impact on the environment? Well, I I first want to pull a thread on on something you said, which is I am a firm believer, having come from a background of Lean Six Sigma and process improvement, that the work that companies are largely doing to improve the environment are the very things they should be doing to improve their profitability and business. So doing good is good business. Absolutely. I mean, just to give you an illustration you know, as we look back at 2019 and our carbon footprint, which is sort of the, I'll call it our baseline year for our ambitions. So we have an ambition to reduce our emissions in our operations by 47% by the year 2030 and to be net zero in our operations by 2040. And so, and our goals have been approved by the science-based target initiative. So we've really set very clear and, and approved ambitions. Looking at our 2019 baseline, 86% of our emissions came from two things, energy and refrigerants. And in both cases, it was the combination of how much we use and the type we use. So in the case of refrigerants, for example, and Europe is ahead of the U.S. in this regard, it's the type of refrigerant we use and the amount of refrigerant we use. And in the case of energy, it's the type of energy we use and the amount of energy we use, right? It's both things in both places. Every time I change one of those levers, I also happen to save money for the company. So if I reduce the number of kilowatt hours, I'm saving the company money. If I change to a, more, a, a renewable source, if I do that in the right way, I can save the company money. If I use less refrigerants, I save the company money. If I change the type of refrigerants, the worst refrigerants for the environment also happen to be more expensive. So all these things are actually great for business. To me, that's such an important thing because depending on who your audience is, you know, not everybody is aligned that there's climate change. You know, there are varying opinions around the globe about that. And despite my personal belief that climate change is real, I need to be able to make sure that the work that we're doing resonates with those who may or may not agree with me. Making sure it's good for business makes sure that those things always stay in alignment. So that's the first thing is I am a really big believer in that. And it's not that you don't have to make investments to actually improve your footprint, but you can do them in a sequence and in a manner that is best for business. And I think that's the way that this is going to be successful long-term. Then to address sort of the, the broader part of your question, I do think that back to this idea of the workforce, I believe, and, and studies have shown that as we look at younger generations, they care a great deal about the companies that they choose to connect with shop at, right, spend their dollars. And in order for them to feel connected, they need to know that the company has values that match their values. And I think that companies are going to increasingly find it's going to be hard to find a workforce if you're not focused on climate, on equality, on helping to support communities, because 
I just think you will no longer have people that want to come and actually be a part of your business. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a number of years ago, it was all about, well, what people do we want to employ? And now it boots on the other foot or the whatever the expression is. It's why should people want to come and work for us? I'm with you. I mean, I think people more and more will want to work for organisations that share their concerns and beliefs in environmental issues. Well, and I think one of the things, too, is we like to believe that we own our reputations, But, and this is actually something that I remember talking about with people at the Congress, which was, we are all only one tweet away from utter annihilation, (laughs) right, in terms of our reputations. And and actually, consumers own our reputations. And so whether or or not... Or maybe it's an X away these days, I don't know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I don't even know what to call it anymore, right? So, um, exactly. Exactly. So, but this notion that we like to believe we're in control of our reputations and our brands, but actually that is now in the hands of our consumers. What we end up not just saying our values are, but actually how we end up bringing those to life for consumers will be critical for retailers who want to survive into the future. It doesn't matter what we say, it matters what we do. Gen Z and millennials, they're watching and they're tweeting or they're Xing or whatever (laughs) the right word is now. When you look to the future, Suzanne, are are you an optimist or a pessimist in terms of retail's contribution to to society? I am an eternal optimist. I mean, in some ways, you think about like what's the first bullet on the job description of anyone who is a chief sustainability officer. Optimist has to be in the sentence, (laughs) right? Maybe AI does too, but optimist has to be in the sentence because I have to believe we can make it better. It doesn't mean that there aren't tough problems to solve or that there aren't days where I feel pessimistic, but I am at heart an optimist. And, you know, something I often think about is there's really no other place in business, much less life, where someone would say, what are you going to be 10 or 15 or 20 years from now? And exactly how are you going to get there? But that is what we are asking chief sustainability officers in our business to do. How are you going to reduce your emissions over a 10-year period? Or how are you going to create a more regenerative agriculture for food production? And those are long-term goals. And yet we have to have that line of sight. And you have to believe that's possible. And I do. And I believe the thing that will make it possible over time are the very two things that we've been talking about, which is one, make sure it's good for business. If it's good for business, it sustains. And the second thing is our associates, our workforce has to be engaged in getting us there. If I'm just some worker at corporate saying, isn't it great that we're trying to do something for the environment, that's not going to land it. It's going to have to be 250,000 employees and 34 million weekly customers in the boat rowing along with me. Well, that's a lot of optimistic people to be in the boat. I wouldn't mind being in the... I don't know that they're all optimists either, but I'm working on them. (laughs) Before we end, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the third leg of that particular stool, which is bringing on the supply base, because clearly a lot of those longer-term issues can only be solved by a combination of working very closely with the retailer and the supply base. So how do you see that working? Because some of these solutions require longer-term term investments require to really work long-term commitments between the retailer and the supply base. Do you see those relationships getting stronger and stronger to enable change to happen on the ground? 
I do. One of the things that I see from many of our CPG partners, not all of them, is they're anxious, ready at the starting line. They have their shoes laced up and are ready to run. In many cases, they've actually been waiting for retailers to fire the gun to move us all out into the race. And when you think about a CPG company, whether it's a Kellogg's or a General Mills or a PepsiCo or a Coca-Cola, as we think about all of those, they all have their own sustainability or ESG agendas. But the way that they would actually deliver those agendas is oftentimes through the retailer because we are the ones to actually sell and message their products. I mean, yes, they can put an ad campaign out there, but that's only going to reach a certain audience. It's walking into your grocery store every week and maybe seeing something that tells you that these bottles are recyclable or here's a bin where you can actually bring the things that you can't recycle at home and things like that. And messaging around this was made with regenerative farming practices or less plastic than it used to. All of those are messages that sort of have to be sent through the retailer. And so we need each other. We need them to create the change and we need to help them shout it so that people lean in to that change and understand what's happening in the industry. So I think we have to be hand in hand in that regard. And one of my favorite phrases that our COO says is the best way to get something done is to do something, <laughs> right? And which in, in its simplicity is just brilliant because it's true. It's we have big ideas about where we want to go and then everyone struggles to start. And the, the truth is, if you just pick something, just pick something and go do it, you can build on that momentum. But when you're at a standstill, it's the first step, right? It's that get out of the starting gate. And so that's what we're working on with CPG companies is let's just start building momentum and eventually it'll just get bigger and bigger. And I think in five, 10 years, while it's a long way out, the optimist in me says that we're going to look back and be really amazed at what we changed. Well, that's a phenomenally optimistic note to end on. Suzanne Long, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I had a ball. For more conversations in this podcast series, go to wppbav.com forward slash WRC 2023.